Let's look to our Lord in prayer. And Father, as we are continuing now in our series in Acts, we want to pause and, of course, pray for the 50 or so that are away from us right now, that are in Green Bay area, and gathered in a worships context to be able to lift their voices and praise to you and absorb teaching that applies to their lives. Very shortly, when they start pulling up in our parking lots, I pray that they will come back with a, a renewed zeal if they know Jesus as Lord and Savior and a, a thorough commitment for those that came to the conference, perhaps not knowing him, but return now do. Do a great work, we pray. Father, do a work in all of our services, and now in this second service as well as the live stream. Pray that you would stir our hearts to want you. So, Father, no matter what it is that anybody's experiencing this morning in any of these services, no matter what we're facing and the questions that we've got us to ask, and there some of them are serious questions. Deep questions, profound questions. Well, we're going to go to the one, Father, who is the ultimate answer to all of life. So, Father, these minutes to come are important. Warm these hearts. Engage these minds and shape these wills. So again, now, Father, we've come here to see Jesus. Him only. And we're praying these things again now in Jesus' name. Amen. I love the story that comes out of the time period of World War II. Dr. Turner was the senior pastor of a church, an American church in Berlin, and just before World War II. He tells this story of visiting Heinrich Niemöller, the elderly father of Martin Niemöller, who stood up to Hitler spent months in a concentration camp. And Turner recalled that as, as they stood at the door preparing to leave, Grandma Niemöller held my left hand in her two hands, and Grandfather Niemöller, grandfather of Martin's seven children, patted my right hand and then put his hand on my shoulder. And this is what he said, Dr. Turner, when you go back to America, do not let anyone pity the father and mother of Martin Niemöller. Only pity any follower of Jesus Christ who does not know the joy that is set before those who endure the cross, despising the shame. Yes, Doctor. It's a terrible thing to have a son in a concentration camp. Paul and I, we know that. But there would be something more terrible for us if God had needed a faithful martyr and our Martin had been unwilling. 
fascinates me is that the Greek word for martyr is witness. And what we see now on the streets of Jerusalem is profound witness that's occurring. And what you're going to see is that this witness is taking place in the midst of intensifying opposition. And now, the disciples had previously been timid men. They'd been in the upper room. They had been hiding until their lives were literally transformed by the recognition that Jesus Christ is risen. One of the tremendous evidences of the Easter story of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. But lurking within this powerful story we're examining this morning is once again that tension that we've described in prior weeks. The tension between what we'll call lowercase authority versus uppercase authority. Lowercase authority, government. Uppercase authority, God. And one of the great dangers in this world is when we make the lowercase the uppercase and the uppercase the lowercase, and then everything is skewed, and you wonder how to navigate through life. But you see, the disciples understood that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, and they would recall those profound words that Jesus Christ had uttered to them, and just before he would ascend into heaven, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So now all authority is in the uppercase person, Jesus Christ. And so with that in mind, they're set in motion out onto the streets of Jerusalem. And though Peter had previously been incarcerated for witnessing, he is so emboldened now, so, so encouraged the hearts of his other colleagues, the apostles. They're now working in unison out on the streets proclaiming the gospel of Christ. Because they know where ultimate authority is found, do you? So what I want to do now with you is to draw three aspects of this powerful story that have to do with what we do when we follow God's will in the midst of opposition. We're going to begin by first of all noting here the varying responses that you and I, we can expect. Because not everybody is going to embrace Jesus the way perhaps you have embraced Jesus. You might have extended family, colleagues, work, so on, school, and they don't quite see it the way you do, but we bring resurrection power into their life experiences. Dig in. So now in verse 12, you and I are told, now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people, but now what captures your attention and captures my attention is that it's being done by the hands of the apostles, and it's plural. All the apostles, not just Peter and John. This takes us back to Acts chapter 2, verse 12, and all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean when they saw the wonders that were incurring at that time? Now, when you and I 
ponder the significance of what's taking place. God is doing something majestic, and he's doing something very public. Read what comes next. And they were all together in Solomon's portico. And I say, haven't been to Solomon's portico. What's that all about? Glad you asked. In John chapter 10, that was a place where Jesus was known when he was in Jerusalem to teach his followers. For example, in John chapter 10, verse 22, you and I are told that at that time, the Feast of Dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon, the portico of Solomon. And the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. Here now, on the streets of Jerusalem, the apostles are communicating the identity of Jesus Christ plainly for all to ponder. We saw that there was something significant happening. Furthermore, when we look carefully in Acts chapter 3, and again now in Acts chapter 5, here we find them in the Solomon's portico, which was a massive Herodian retaining wall setting. And it was here that Jesus walked and talked and taught. His disciples are regularly gathering together. And now the people have gathered before they're scattered. Just like this congregation, all of our services. And they're beginning to digest what's happening. But right when you think there's this dynamic and everybody should come to know Jesus as Lord and Savior... Check out verse 13. Because you and I are told, none of the rest did join them, but the people held them in high esteem. And so now, look very carefully at that key word, join. It's a very formal word. It carries with the idea that they are making a serious commitment to being part of this, to being united with this one named Jesus who was raised from the dead. But not everybody did. They respect what's happening, but they might be a bit fearful. Fearful because they're worried about what you and I view as lowercase authority, but what they might view as uppercase authority. And so they're standing back, and they're not necessarily wanting to become part of this movement of the Holy Spirit. <coughs> Excuse me. Stories told, sweeping revival. Princeton, Aaron Burr came to the president of the school and said, Sir, I've made up my mind. I've got to consider the claims of Christ. What, do you, what would you do? And the president of the university said, Burr, if I were you, I would wait until this excitement of the revival has subsided, and then I would think it out carefully. We're told that Burr bowed his head a moment and said, that is exactly what I'll do. And it stated as a fact that never again in his life did he express a desire to become a Christian. He was in that famous duel, of course, with Alexander Hamilton. Well, now, some of these people, they're pondering this movement. They sense the excitement, but there's this reservation. What is it? Are they fearful of the Sanhedrin? 
that had sentenced Jesus to death. So none of the rest dared join them, but the people held them in high esteem. See, nonetheless, and so you're up to verse 14. And in verse 14, we're told, more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women. Now, Luke is a physician. It's fascinating to me. Those in the medical community, you're fascinated as well with the way in which Luke weaves together pastoral and medical matters to be able to offer a holistic impact and influence in the way in which God is at work here. In verse 15, what God is doing is authenticating the apostles' work. They even carried out the sick into the streets, laid them on cots and mats. So they have this hope, the average people out in the streets, that as Peter would come by, that even his shadow might fall on some of them. What fascinates me is that Luke three times, in the Gospel of Luke as well as the book of Acts, three times talks about the way in which something or someone overshadows, you see such as in that account when Christ was born. Well, they're longing for even just a glimpse of Peter. And so in 16, the people also gathered from the towns. It's getting out. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, the uttermost parts. It's happening. The gathered, the scattered, the people in verse 16 also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem. And they want to be where the action is. And so they're bringing the sick, those afflicted. And notice now how wise and discerning the physician is at this point. Those afflicted with unclean spirits. He distinguishes between the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits. Do you see it there, verse 16? And yet, holistically speaking, he goes on to say, they were all healed. And so, what God is doing now at this point is powerfully addressing the needs of the hour and showing ways in which he can be operating, even in a setting when people are trying to resist, like the Sanhedrin was, the resurrection of Jesus Christ. One of my sons lives in Texas and works at the airport there in Dallas, Fort Worth. He and his wife Jessica live there now. Stories told at that airport where there was this businessman. He realized he had about an hour on his hand as he was making plane connections. And he was wondering, well, how can I be used by God here? You ever wrestle with that question at work or in school or wherever, neighborhood? Well, how can I be used by God here? Here's what he did. He had a supply of tracks, gospel tracks with him. So he simply inserted one of his business cards inside each track, gave it to these people who were waiting for their planes. But he didn't just hand them out and pass on. Instead, he said to each person, uh, pardon, I have a little booklet that explains how someone can become a Christian. Inside's my business card. Love for you to be able to read this over. If you have any questions, I'm going to be sitting over there for 
the next hour or so. I have some time on my hands before my plane takes off. So if you'd like to connect to a one-way shape or form, here's my address. I'm told at the end of the hour, people were standing in line waiting to ask questions about how to become a Christian, many of whom came to saving faith in Jesus Christ. Manage your time wisely. Don't assume the fleeting settings that you find yourself in where you say, I'm only here for a short time. It's a setting that keeps you from having lasting impact. Manage the moments God gives you. Now, what the apostles are doing is managing the moments and managing the opportunities, and the moments and the opportunities are wedded together in life, you see. And they come at extraordinary times. But they also produce extraordinarily different reactions. You're going to have what I would call the early adapters, then the middle adapters, then the late adapters, but also the non-adapters. That's what spectrum is all about. And why in full spectrum discipleship, we've got to figure out where people are and keep moving them along, moving them along under the authority of God's word. But when you and I look at this, we see that when you and I are following God's will, even in the midst of opposition, and it might be relationally, it might be occupationally, you know, first of all, there's going to be varying responses, and don't get discouraged. Even the disciples experienced that. You can expect it. But not only the varying responses we can expect in 12 through 16, but now, second of all, notice with me the ultimate authority we must obey, found here in verse 17 down through verse 21. Now, notice the word but. This is critical. When you and I are examining what God is doing, we're going to see sudden reversals occurring. And so now Luke, and he's a very gifted writer at this point, everything seems to be going good. But you see that word? All of a sudden, there's pushback. And maybe in your life experience, everything seems to be flowing naturally, when all of a sudden, medically, occupationally, financially, relationally, whatever it is, the B-U-T comes along, and there is a reversal of what I'll call fortunes. But the high priest, wasn't he involved in having Jesus Christ sentenced to death? He rose up. Rose up comes from a same Greek word which is used repeatedly throughout Acts chapter 5 to describe something of suddenness where there will be a change in what is occurring. The high priest rose up and noticed his influence. All who are with him, that is the party of the Sadducees, Hit the pause button. Who are these people? They are the ruling authorities right now in Jerusalem. What did they believe? Well, maybe we should ask, what didn't they believe? They did not believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. They didn't believe in resurrection. Second of all, they didn't believe in angels. And always Luke can have some fun with them because he's going to tie these two non-belief issues together. So notice now that the Sadducees, they are filled with jealousy. 
Now, as they're filled with jealousy, my mind goes back to our proverb of the day, Proverbs chapter 6, verse 34, where Solomon had penned these words, Jealousy enrages a man. And there's nothing worse than religious jealousy. Well, the Hebrews only used one word for jealousy in the Older Testament. I'm looking at the word kwana. It means literally to be intensely red. It was used to describe one whose face is flushed as a sudden flow of blood announces a surge of emotion here. That's the idea behind what's happening here. And so now, they're filled with jealousy. Why? Because they are threatened at this point with regard to what's taking place. They have power, they have authority, and they want to use their power to maintain their authority. What happens when you're confronted with resurrection power by the one who says, all authority is within me? Everything gets reversed. So their jealousy is tied to their sense of feeling threatened. You ever notice that in the workplace or in schools? Even politically, Chuck Colson puts it this way, power and authority must not be confused. Power is the ability to affect one's ends or purposes in the world. Authority is having not only the power, but also the right to affect one's purpose. Power is often maintained by naked force. Authority springs from a moral foundation. So now we're going to have a clash of authority. Who is the uppercase authority anyways? A clash of power. Who has ultimate power anyways? Meanwhile, they still have to grapple with the fact, don't they, that Peter and John were involved in the miraculous raising of this man crippled from birth. And if God can raise one crippled from birth to walk, then God can raise one who is dead to live. So they've been announcing the resurrection of Jesus Christ and proclaiming that that's the basis by which this man has been raised. And so authority and authentication goes together here in what's unfolding. The Sadducees are feeling threatened. And sometimes when you're sharing the gospel with people, they're going to start to feel threatened. They will have to give up something that they value. These guys value their position of authority. They're feeling jealous. And so what do they do? They arrest the apostles. Put them, put them in the public prison. And then my mind goes back to Alexander Solzhenitsyn in his incredible volume of the Gulag Archipelago. It was only when I lay there on a rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. And gradually it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes, not through states, nor between classes, nor between political parties either, right through every human heart and through all human hearts. So bless you, prison, for having been in my life. First it was Peter and John, 
now it's all the apostles. They've been grouped together, thrown in together. Can you imagine the conversations? Can you imagine the dialogue? But then my mind goes back to a volume I have back in my home office, written by Dietrich Bonhoeffer. And there are two excerpts, one in which while he was in prison, speaks of Christ's advent, the other, Christ's resurrection. The book's entitled Letters, Papers from Prison, First Advent. Life in a prison cell may well be compared to Advent. One waits, hopes, does this, that, or the other. Things that are really of no consequence. The door is shut and can be opened only from the outside. In just a second, the door is going to be opened from the outside in this passage. But here's the other. Easter, we're paying attention to dying rather than to death. We are more concerned to get over the act of dying than to overcome death. Christ overcame death as the last enemy, and there's a real difference between the two things. The one is within the scope of human possibilities. The other means resurrection. And what fascinates me is that Bonhoeffer, as well as Niemöller, who we began with this morning, both stood in opposition to Hitler, who was lowercase authority, but presented himself as uppercase authority. Look what happens next. And this is astounding. Another but. Everything was going wrong. In verse 17, before that, everything was going right. So everything was going right, then everything is going wrong, but you get up to verse 19, and but during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out. Luke's got to be smiling, the physician, because the Sadducees denied the reality of resurrection, denied the reality of angels. Is it fascinating how Luke brings angels into his Lucan account of the, first of the gospel uh, when he describes the work of angels in chapters 1 and 2 of the gospel? And now here we're at it again, but. This but contrasts that but. A reversal here, another reversal here. It's the reversal of the reversal. But during the night, an angel of the Lord opened the prison doors and brought them out, but he doesn't leave there standing at the door. Now, when God is doing something of significance in your life, he's not going to leave you standing at the door. He's going to empower you with something to do. And now these apostles are going to be looking at this scenario and they're saying God has the authority to be able and the power to be able to get me out of this situation. What do I do? Go. Stand in the temple. That's where I got arrested. Stand in the temple. Speak to the people. Get this. All the words. Don't be selective. All the words of this life. And another incarceration. 
Ada Skripnikova, the old Soviet Union. She comes to know Jesus as Lord and Savior. Wrote a poem entitled Happy New Year. She was a medical school student. Wanted to tell others about the ultimate great physician. What awaits you, my friend? She wrote in a poem, Beyond the Grave. Answer this question while light remains. Perhaps tomorrow before God you'll appear to give an answer for everything. Think deeply about this, for you are not of this earth forever. Perhaps tomorrow you'll break forever your links with this world. Seek God while he's to be found. And then you know what? She took this poem, stood on the Nevsky Prospect, which was Leningrad, now St. Petersburg's equivalent of Fifth Avenue in New York City. She was arrested. She was tried by a communist court. She was exiled, lost her standing in school, and her means of putting herself through school. Released, she went out on the streets and continued to share the gospel. Arrested again, sent to a labor camp for a year. Then released, arrested again, sent to a labor camp for three more years. You know what gripped her heart? She was able to say, knowing the Lord Jesus Christ, I was the freest soul there was in Leningrad. Go stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall never hunger. Whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. The writer Irenaeus said, the glory of God is a man fully alive. It was the gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 4, that contains these words, in him was life, and the life was the light of men. Go. Stand in the temple, speak to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard this, they entered the temple and get this. They didn't sleep in. Well, the Sanhedrin's probably sleeping in. But at daybreak, there's a promptness. There's an immediacy to this. They entered the temple, the very place that they had been, that they had been removed from, they entered the temple where they had been previously very vulnerable at daybreak. They didn't waste any time and began to teach. So what do you got here so far? You see the varying responses that we can, we can expect in 12 through 16, the ultimate authority that we've got to obey in 17 through the first part of 21, but now, watch carefully the screen, because thirdly, notice with me the intensifying resistance that you and I, we should anticipate, beginning in the second part of 21. Now, when the high priests came, remember, they were involved in the sentencing of Jesus Christ. And those who were with him, they called together the council, all the sin of the people of Israel, sent to the prison, to have them brought. They, they, they're not in the inn yet. They haven't gotten word yet. But, another but, 
when the officers came, and I can just see the physician Luke now smiling from ear to ear, they did not find them in the prison. Now, this is the first of three significant episodes of God removing someone from prison for sharing the gospel. The second, in Acts 12, Peter. The third, Paul and Silas, in Acts chapter 16. And so, they returned and they reported, we found the prison securely locked. Does this remind you of something that comes next? The gods standing at the doors. Does this remind you of anything? But when we opened them, we found no one inside. Three days later, God the Father raised Jesus. There's a vacancy sign over that tomb. There's no one inside. Here now are these apostles. And authority is being authenticated. No one inside. What is the Sanhedrin who lowercase authority, positioning themselves from the people as uppercase, what are they going to think? So when the officers came, they did not find them in the prison. They returned and said, we found the prison securely locked, the guards standing at the doors. But when we opened them, we found no one inside. The guards had vested interest physically, positionally, occupationally, to keep the prisoners in. Now what's the Sanhedrin to think? They denied resurrection power, and three days later God raises them from the dead. Now look what happens. So when the captain of the temple and the chief priests heard these words, you're up to verse 24, they were greatly perplexed which is what happens when you take people to God's word and expose them to ultimate truth, ultimate authority, the evidences of resurrection power, and get people to rethink their presuppositions. What do you do? What do you do? They were wondering what this would come to. In other words, what's next? Well... In verse 25, someone came and told them, Look, the men whom you put in prison are standing in the temple teaching the people. Damage control. The captain with the officers went, brought them, but this time not by force. Do you remember... Prior to the resurrection, the apostles were in the upper room, timid and afraid. But subsequent to the resurrection, they're on the streets with boldness and courage. Now look who's afraid. The ones who had sentenced Jesus. 
they were afraid of being stoned by the people. Love the story of Peter McKenzie, who's being shown over Madame Tussauds waxworks in London. He came to this one object where a guide said, this is the chair in which Voltaire sat, an atheist, and wrote down his thoughts in opposition to Christianity, denying the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the chair, asked Peter. And then, without seeking permission, stepped over the cord, sat down on the chair, and began to sing as only a redeemed one can sing. Jesus shall reign where the sun doth his successive journeys run. His kingdom stretch from shore to shore till moons shall wax and wane no more. Do it again. We sang that, you know. And so there's this intensifying resistance. You're going to expect it. You should anticipate it. But you tie all this together and you realize that this is all that needs to be understood thus far when you're following God's will in the midst of opposition. And so you nod your head. And you understand very carefully what Grandpa Niemöller was saying. When you go back to America, Dr. Turner, don't let anyone pity the father and mother of Martin Niemöller. Only pity any follower of Jesus Christ who does not know the joy that's set before those who endure the cross, despising the shame. Yes, it's a terrible thing to have a son in a concentration camp. Paula, here, and I, we know that. But there would be something more terrible for us if God needed a faithful martyr, Greek word for witness, and our Martin had been unwilling. Let's stand together. One of the great signs of being in your will is when there is opposition to your will. And they come from various angles and corners, sometimes from unexpected people. Father, teach us from your word. There's going to be varying responses. We can expect it. But there is an ultimate authority. We need to be in obedience to him. And there will be intensifying resistance. We should anticipate it. But through it all, three days later, you raised Jesus from the dead. And for this, we give you all the praise. In Jesus' name.